Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. First of all, I'm so glad to be here. Uh, my name is Jeremy, if we haven't met, and I had the chance to be here earlier in the summer, but I had a great vacation for a few weeks, a chance to spend some time with my family, and so I've been following along on the podcast all summer, uh, listening to the sermons, which has been great. But we are now seven days away from the launch of our new season, and we've got some really fun stuff planned both for here in Inglewood and over in Kensington as well. However, today we do still have one more psalm to work our way through, and it's a good one. However, before we start, uh, we also know that it is the Calgary Pride March today, and we know a lot of people from our community are down enjoying the parade despite the weather, and so we want to send our best wishes to all of those who are marching, whether that is for themselves, for friends, for loved ones. Uh, we love you, and we hope that you feel that support from across the city today. Now, just to recap a little bit from this summer, we have been looking at psalms all summer, and these are poems that sit in about the middle of your Bible. A few years ago, we worked through nine psalms together. This summer, we've done eight more, which means that after today, we will have covered 17 of the 150 psalms in your Bible. So only 133 to go. We'll get to those at some point, I'm sure. But it is kind of remarkable when you recognize just how significant a chunk of our sacred texts are made up of poetry. I put some of my thoughts up on this on our YouTube channel already this summer. But part of what I love about the Psalms and part of what I love about how central the Psalms are to us is that they remind us that the primary way we speak of the divine is literary. Not literal, but literary. And that's important. Because I think sometimes we fall into this trap of thinking that literal, concrete, verifiable, factual language is paramount. But the truth is, whenever it comes to God, all of that is actually incredibly limited. I mean, almost nothing I ever say about God is literally true. It's all language that grasps at straw to communicate this thing we call divine love. And so metaphor and simile and analogy and poetry, this is really all that we have in the end when it comes to God. God's love is like nothing else that we know. It's infinite and unchanging and unconquerable. And so what happens is we use words to point to our best experiences of broken love that we see around us. And that's appropriate, it's good, it's healthy, but it's always an analogy for something better. And one of the ways that we can say this is that all theology is biography. Everything you ever say about God is a reflection of the life that you've experienced and therefore the life that you've encountered God through. But remembering the centrality of the Psalms and poetry and subjectivity in the scriptural narrative, this reminds us just how beautiful all of our grasping really is. Your words about God are limited, but that's precisely because God is not. And it's psalms and songs and poetry that help us remember that beauty. Now, today we have Psalm 42, but first let's pray. 
God of grace and peace. We welcome you into this moment just as you have welcomed us into this day. May our words and our voices, our conversations and our togetherness this day remind us of the divine among us right now as we turn our attention to the poetry of your people. The images and the metaphors that have carried countless followers through difficult spaces for millennia. May we find ourselves in the tumult of those who hold fast to you. Speak peace to our anxiety, encourage to our fears, speak grace to our shortcomings and love to the deepest parts of our being. Might we yearn to encounter you this day. In the strong name of the risen Christ we pray, amen. Okay. Psalm 42 is a little bit on the shorter side, so let me read it to you completely, and then we'll dive in together. It says this, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festival throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for yet I will praise him, my savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and the heights of the Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for yet I will praise him, my savior and my God. Psalm 42. Now, that opening stanza, as the deer pants for streams of water, when I was a kid and I was first exposed to Christianity, there was a very popular song that riffed off this line. I will save you my rendition of it, but it was a nice song. However, this is a very famous psalm. And so today we have authorship to talk about, metaphor, memory, and the full story to remind ourselves of. But let's start with who wrote this poem because I read the entire psalm to you, but there is also a superscription for Psalm 42, and it will be labeled verse zero in your Bible. And sometimes, because of the way the psalms are numbered and laid out with this verse zero, what happens is a lot of people learn to ignore those superscriptions. They assume that they are just editorial comments, and they are, in a sense except that they are very old editorials. Now, there is some debate, but most scholars would suggest that these verse zeros in your Bible are not original to the poems or the poets. 
They were likely added when the Psalms were collected and prepared for worship in the community. But, and this is important, we actually have no record of the Psalms from before these superscriptions were added to them. All of our oldest copies of the Psalms, including the Masoretic texts, which come from about the 10th century, and that's where our Bibles are translated from, including the Dead Sea Scrolls from Qumran that were discovered last century, but were written actually in the century before Jesus, all of them have these introductory verses. Now, sometimes copies are a little bit different from each other, that's why we have textual criticism to help us figure out what the original was, but we actually have no textual tradition of the Psalms without these introductory statements. And what that means is that as far as the community of God is concerned, these verse zeros in your Bible, they are part of the sacred text. Now, I put you through all of that because this particular verse zero is actually kind of interesting. It says this, for the director of music, a maskeel of the sons of Korah. Now, the sons of Korah. Of the 12 tribes of Israel, one of them were the Levites. And within the Levites, the descendants of Aaron became the priests in the community. But there were other roles for other Levites. Within the Levites, there were three main groupings, the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merorites, and within the Kohathites, there was another group called the Korahites. These were the sons of Korah. Now, Korah was the cousin of Moses, who led a rebellion against Moses, and who, along with his co-conspirators, was consumed by a fireball from heaven, so legend says. But that means, that the sons of Korah were part of the Levite tribe, the descendants of a trader who continued to serve the community by writing songs and leading in worship. And in fact, 12 of the Psalms in your Bible are credited to these sons of Korah. This one just happens to be one of the most famous songs in human history. And I wanna think about that for a second because probably all of us have something somewhere in our story that we wish we could just forget about. Like something back there that we're embarrassed by or something that we wish we could leave behind. Sometimes it's a part of our story, sometimes it's a family story, uh, sometimes it's something that was handed to us and we had no control over it and yet it just kinda hangs around like a bad haircut. And sometimes, I think, that we have this tendency to imagine that the only way for us to move forward is somehow to cut ties and to start fresh, to leave the past behind and move to a new city with a new name and begin all over again. And sometimes that's true. There is a place for that. But you would be surprised by what can be redeemed. Because I'm gonna guess that exactly no one here has ever heard of Korah and his story. And yet here you are reading the sons of Korah thousands of years after they wrote. And if you have hurt someone at some point, or you have damaged a relationship in your life, if you've made decisions that you regret, none of that ever has to stay your story. Because regardless of what your name has meant, your name means whatever you choose for yourself right now.
And every morning that you get up and you live with generosity and grace and commitment to the story that you want your life to be about, this is the story that will eventually outlive you. And look, people can talk about you, they can tell stories about you, they can misrepresent you, but the story that you let God tell in you and through you, this is the story that matters. Now, that's already interesting, at least to me. But we're not done with this superscription just yet. Because there's this other word in there that kind of stands out when we read it. And it's one that's not in English. It's the word maskeel. Now, a maskeel is a type of song. But the interesting thing here is that a maskeel is generally a, quote, joyous song. And having just read through Psalm 42, that does not seem to describe this particular song. A couple weeks ago, I was at Home Depot and I was renting a hammer drill. I was gonna return it after I installed the new bike racks outside of our Kensington Parish, which was a lot of fun. I enjoyed using it, although I was very sore the next day because manual labor, I'm not used to that. But in front of me was another gentleman who was returning his rented power tool. And I was the audience for this very strange encounter and the lack of or miscommunication of expectation. The employee was checking in the tool, checked everything was there, rang it up, and the rental came to $74. And upon hearing this, the gentleman who had rented the tool says, wait, that's not right. I thought a minimum charge was in effect. To which the man behind the counter said, yeah, but you were over the minimum charge anyway, so it doesn't really matter. That will be $74. However, the first gentleman pulled out his contract and pointed again to where it said minimum charge in effect at the top of the page. And he explained, yeah, but it says here, minimum charge in effect. Shouldn't I only have to pay the minimum? I mean, it's in effect after all. And at this point, I'm trying to figure out whether this man really doesn't understand what the phrase minimum charge in effect means or whether he's just trying to scam his way into a cheap rental, but thankfully, after a few minutes of back and forth, he grumbled and paid, and I was able to return my tool, which, by the way, did have the minimum charge in effect, because I only needed it for about an hour, but the point is, if you're expecting one thing, and you show up and get another, it can be a little bit disorienting for you. And for me, there's actually something beautifully jarring about imagining this poem at home in the category of the joyous. You see, maskeel is actually this really complicated word. The root is sakal, which means to have insight or to teach. And so the maskeel psalms are those that offer us wisdom, which brings us to joy. But sometimes wisdom is about knowing how to navigate those more difficult spaces in our lives, isn't it? And this is really interesting to me. What is joy? What does it mean to sing for joy? Does it mean an absence of grief in our lives? Or can it actually sometimes be grief observed well? And spoiler here, that's what I think this psalm is really all about. So, talked a lot in the lead up here, but let's go back and walk our way through the movements of this poem. And I'm going to use Robert Alter's translation of the psalm for the rest of the sermon because I really like his rendition of it. And we'll talk a little bit about that and why as we go. But the poem begins this way. As a deer yearns for streams of water, so I yearn for you, O God. 
My whole being thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and see the presence of God? Now, there's a couple neat things here. First of all, the more familiar translation is as the deer pants, so my soul pants. But what's interesting here is that this word, it's ta'arag in Hebrew, actually only shows up twice in the Bible, and so we don't really know exactly what it means. The only other appearance comes in the prophet Joel, and there it's describing something very similar. But the old debate among the rabbis was whether this word described the sound of an animal lapping up water, or whether it was meant to describe the action of leaning in or bending their neck down toward the water. Now, I happen to think panting is probably the more evocative image here, but the reason that Alter has gone with yearning is because he's leaning toward that second meaning of the word. It's the idea of reaching out or bending toward God. And really, that's what's going on in the poem, isn't it? This isn't describing someone who has found God yet. This isn't an animal who has reached the water yet. This is something, someone leaning in. My whole being thirsts. When shall I get to come and see God? This is about sacred anticipation in our lives. And part of what's neat here is the way that anticipation is layered on top of itself in the poem. You start with this idea of a deer yearning for water, then you've got the writer yearning for the living God, but in Hebrew, the adjective living is also the adjective for fresh water, and so there's a lot of layering happening here. But you've also got this neat thing with the phrase, the presence of God, because originally at one point, this was, when shall I see the face of God? Now, it's been revocalized in the psalm, And this is this fascinating practice in Hebrew where you might write something about God, but you would dare not, you would never actually say it. So this is like the divine name. You write the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, but you say Adonai or Lord. Some things are just too sacred to say out loud. And here the writer has actually written the face of God but when you read it, you say the presence or the reflection of the divine. And so it's almost this image here of a deer who bends her neck down to the water and she sees the face of her creator in the reflection looking back at her. Because there is something holy in our yearning. And maybe it's not the face of God directly, it's always imperfect and there's ripples in the water. But when we long for something well, not out of jealousy or envy, but maybe out of our passion and our excitement and our experience of the goodness of God and the breadth of creation around us, this in itself is somehow an encounter with divine presence. Your deepest, truest, best longings are sacred. And if you honor and you cultivate them and you prune them when necessary, this will help you recognize the face of God in the world. And all of this is off to a pretty good start, right? 
I mean, if you were to read that superscription and you were anticipating a joyous song and you open a scroll and you read, as a deer yearns, so I yearn, my whole being thirsts, when will I come to see the divine reflected back to me? You're probably feeling pretty good about things right now. And yet, the poet continues. My tears became my bread day and night. As they said to me all day long, where is your God? And we've had thirst as this sort of central metaphor in the poem so far. Now we're getting salt bread to eat. We've talked about entering into the presence of God. Now we're being mocked for ever having believed we might see the face of God. And I think sometimes what happens is we've heard this before and we read through and maybe we know where it's going. And don't get me wrong, I mean it is beautiful when you remember and you memorize the scriptures, right? Being able to recall the Psalms that speak to the moment you find yourself in, that can be a wonderful source of comfort. And there are times, frequently actually, when I find that I just don't have the words to express myself in prayer, And being able to go back and rely on the words of the people of God to speak for me is profound. But sometimes, because we know where the song goes, we kind of jump ahead in our head and we miss the shocking twist along the way. And sometimes that's really the point, isn't it? Look, you open Psalm 42 and you're told to expect a masquille, a joyous song about wisdom and life, and you start reading about yearning and longing and all of that being reflected back to you, and then your tears become your bread. That is going to shake you. And of course, I'm not just talking about Psalm 42. I'm talking about the fact that you got married and then you found out it was much harder than you thought. Or you started a new job and it wasn't at all what you expected. Or you encountered God, you really did, and that the next day you had to go back into broken, strained relationships full of tension and strife and you had to figure out where the divine was in all of that. Because here's the thing about wisdom and about joy, if it can't face a real world, then it's not particularly wise and maybe it's really not all that joyful either. And here, the sons of Korah, with all of their backstory, aren't trying to sell you something that doesn't exist. They believe in joy, and they trust in wisdom, and they are confident that your yearnings are a reflection of the divine that animates you, but they want more for you than a pep talk right now. They wanna build something durable. And so they begin up here, and then they drag you all the way down here, and then they begin to turn inward. And so the voice of the poem begins to speak to herself now. She says in verse five, how bent my being, how you moan for me. Hope in God, for yet I will acclaim him for his rescuing presence. Now, two things here. Alter uh, has used the phrase, how bent my being. The NIV, which I read from earlier at the beginning, said my soul is downcast within me. The trick here, though, is the translation of these words, shiach nefesh. 
Geshiach can mean many things. It can be to flow or to dissolve, to vanish or disappear. But the core idea of the word is to melt. Nefesh is often translated soul. But really, the idea in Hebrew is more like your life spirit. It's the you that lives in you and through you. And here, in the form that it takes in Psalm 42, actually, it most directly refers to your breath. So literally, what the poet says is something like, my breath melts away. The NIV has taken that to mean, oh, you're really sad. Your soul is downcast. Alter has taken that to mean something more tragic. He says, how bent my being. He kind of has this idea of something that has become twisted inside the poet, like almost like a candle that's melting and bending over. Um, personally, I actually kind of think my breath melts away is just pretty great on its own. For me, that captures that sense of not even being able to express exactly what's happening inside of me. And you've been there, right? That space where someone asks you what's wrong and all you can say is, I don't know. But then this interesting thing happens. From there, the poet says, yet I will hope in God, I will claim him for his rescuing presence. We've already seen what that presence is about, right? That's the face of God. Literally, the Hebrew here says, I will praise the face of my salvation. But from there, the poet moves on an upswing now. My God, my being is bent from my plight, therefore I recall you from Jordan land. From the Hermans and Mount Mizar, deep unto deep calls out at the sound of your channels, all of your breakers and waves surge over me. By day the Lord ordains his kindness. By night his song is with me. Prayers to the God of my life. And so in the midst of this moment, defined by darkness and despair, it's like the poet is trying to reach out and remember better times. That's good. It's wise and it's healthy and it's holy. And when you find yourself stuck somewhere, It's important to remember that there is not all there is. But remember here, the sons of Korah aren't trying to sell you on something that doesn't exist. And sometimes even when you do all the right things, even when you do all the right steps in all the right ways and you remember all the good times that have been, you still just feel sad, right? And so the very next line is a return to the pit. I would say to the God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why in gloom do I go, hard pressed by the foe, with murder in my bones, my enemies revile me? When they say to me all day long, where is your God? How bent my being, how you moan for me. Hope in God, for yet I will acclaim him, the face of my rescue, my God. And I know that you hoped this psalm would end on a better note than that. God knows I did. But this right here is really what makes Psalm 42 a masquil for me. It's what makes it wise, and it's what makes it paradoxically somehow joyous in the end. 
because this poem doesn't feel the need to run from pain. It recognizes it and it names it. It acknowledges the waves of grief that come and go and ebb and flow in our lives. And yet it refuses to accept that that pain is all there is or all there ever will be. See, grief and acknowledgement and time, these are such incredibly important parts of your story. But sometimes what happens is we forget them as parts and we confuse them for the whole. And there is this very fine line in our lives between honoring our pain and being honest with our grief and then slipping over the edge into self-pity and despair that feeds on itself and begins to emaciate us. Ram Das once said that we often savor our misery like wine. And what's so wise about this poem I think what sparks joy in this poet is the fact that the poem doesn't feel the need to push pain down in a way where it can fester and grow, but it doesn't want to savor it either. Instead, it brings all of that hurt to the surface. It honors it as holy, it allows it to speak and be heard, but never is the only voice in the song. Because what the sons of Korah know is that grief observed well is the only way back to your joy. Before we close, I wanna show you a brief clip of an interview between Stephen Colbert and Anderson Cooper. It was done a few weeks ago and it made the rounds on social media. And maybe it's not exactly what you expect to see in a church on a Sunday, but I wanna watch this, certainly for the answer that Colbert gives here, but also for the tenderness that his words evoke and open up in Anderson Cooper. Because I think what you'll see here is part of what this poem is trying to pull out and open up in you. That space for your hurt to be honored and transformed into something new on the other side. Take a look at this. I told an interviewer uh, that you have learned to, in your words, love the thing that I most wish had not happened. Um, I remember. You went on. To, you went on to say, uh, "What what punishments of God are not gifts?" Do you really believe that? Yes. It's a gift to exist. It's a gift to exist. And with existence comes suffering. There's no escaping that. And I guess I'm either a Catholic or a Buddhist when I say those <laughs> things, because I've heard those from, from both traditions. But I didn't learn it that I was grateful for the thing I most wish hadn't happened, is that I realized it. Mm-hmm. Is that, and it's, a, it's an odd, oddly guilty feeling. You it, don't, it doesn't mean you. I don't, want, I don't want it to have happened. I want it to not have happened. Right. But if you are grateful for your life, which I think is a positive thing to do, um, yeah. not everybody is, right. and not, I'm not always. Mm-hmm. So what do you get from loss? You get awareness of other people's loss. Well, that's true. Empathy. Which allows you to connect with that other person. Right. Which allows you to love more deeply and to understand what it's like to be a human being, if it's true that all humans suffer. Right. Uh, what Colbert is expressing here is what the sons of Korah knew thousands of years ago. 
Life is a gift and life is hard and life is beautiful. And it's only when all of that is allowed to be named in our lives that we can properly find joy in the full story as we experience it. How bent my being, how you moan for me, hoping God, for yet I will acclaim the face of my rescue, my God. May you hurt deeply. May you grieve fully. May you celebrate joyfully the experience of it all. May you ebb and flow and find the wisdom to be exactly where you are right now in this moment so that empathy might become you in the strong name of the risen Christ, amen.